Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Today I'm joined by Mark and Lonnie. Gentlemen, good to get together. We're going to jump straight into today's topic. As everyone knows what's going on in the music world, not much. Live Nation, yeah, it's hilarious what they're talking about doing to artists while none of them are touring. But today we're going to talk about a band that's not on the road. Dokken. And uh, we're going to focus in on Under Lock and Key, their third studio album, which is really, I guess, the first album of theirs that I I really owned. I've been watching MTV prior to that and was aware of those music videos of theirs that were in circulation. I hadn't bought Tooth and Nail yet then, I believe. But then again, the 80s are all very, very fuzzy. Lonnie, what was your first introduction to Dokken and about when did you uh, discover them as a band? I got into Dokken late in the game. Um, I I really didn't get into them. It's, it's almost embarrassing to say when I when I discovered Dokken, and that would be in, it's it's, it's crazy. Um, 2006 is when I got into Dokken. I know. Um, and the re- and the reason why I got into Dokken is um, for Christmas of 2005, I got a Sirius XM, or it wasn't even Sirius XM, it was a Sirius radio. Mm. Um, and the reason I got a Sirius radio is because Howard Stern was switching to Sirius 19 of 06. And I wanted my Sirius radio so I could listen to Howard on my way to work or when I was at work. Um, and Hair Nation was one of the first stations I started listening to almost right away. And you know, I loved it because it's playing just all all kinds of my kind of music, and they and they you know they played and they still play um, a fair amount of Dokken. and it got me to go back and and visit some of these 80, 80s bands that I had neglected and never got gave a chance back in the day. So for me, Dokken came in late in the game, but I I love it; it's good stuff. You know, as is the case when we talk about Kiss or some other the big bands, it doesn't matter when you got on board, just that you did get on board. Or gave them a chance, so it doesn't matter what year. Yeah. There you go. And I, I love the story about it being a side benefit to Howard Stern. That's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Mark, how about you? When when did you get introduced to them and how? Um, well, I got into them not as late, but I got into them a little bit later. Um, we When I was in this band back in the day, uh, one of my first bands, actually, my singer used to insist on having these crazy backyard parties in the summertime and they would get you know full of people and one of the things we used to do back then is you know we bring out the big stereo into the yard and people would back then bring their cds to the party you know like oh i'm going to mike's party yeah yeah bring your cds so we were bringing cds over and uh, a lot of the times back then this was about between 90 and 92 okay um they people were bringing tons of CDs over. And what was really popular, at least in our neck of the woods, was compilation CDs, those metal ones, you know, like metal hits or metal ballads and all that stuff, you know. So they would bring in these discs and had all the usual people on there, Lita Ford and Motley Crue, Wasp, Van Halen, Dawkins and stuff like that. And I remember distinctly one night we were partying and I heard the song on there and I was like, that song is really cool. What the hell is that? I go over to the stereo, check out the case, flip it to the back to see 
was on there and i i remembered like the, it was just the guitar playing right away that was really fantastic on it and it was unchained the night which is the opening song from this record and i right away i was like what is this band and i looked at this docking and i remember that especially in our group of people docking was not really a name that jumped on people's tongues when you talked about bands that you liked and it was always wasp or motley crew or bands like that and docking was kind of like a you know, like a little secret, like, hey, but but have you heard Dawkin? And it's like, no, I haven't. Like, check it out, man. They're really cool. It's kind of like that band that you got introduced after you got into Crew and all those other bands. Yeah, that's really kind of where they fit in, in terms of, you know, back in 1986, you know, what was I listening to? Well, as new stuff came out in late 85, 86, it was the era of Night Songs from Cinderella. It was the mm-hmm. era of, uh, uh, what was it? mechanical resonance tesla was the other big one dave lee ross eat him and smile Mm -hmm. you know so those are kind of the big albums but this one for me was and thrown in with what was going on with la bands like motley Crue had transitioned from shout at the devil to theater of pain and had gone Mm -hmm. you know very much more polished and you know i think tried to work a little bit harder on the songs in some way for more commercial appeal and accessibility rat had done the same they'd gone from kind of rough and raucous out out of the cellar into invasion of your privacy which was again much softer wasp had done the whole you know into the electric circus versus you know last command so it, it was a common theme in the mid 80s for these bands to you know put on some pretty clothes taken off you know remember george lynch before there you know basically dressed up like paul stanley with a well with a, as a guitar hero with streamers and stuff coming off him um so it was less of a guitar focused in terms of your first docking album what was the first docking album you recall owning if you ever owned one and Lonnie may just be playlist because you're much younger uh yeah, and uh, also, what is your favorite Dawkins album? You know, obviously we'll talk all about Under Lock and Key, but let's get those other two out of the way, Lonnie. Well, I know I'm younger than you guys, but I am a CD guy. I am not a playlist guy. I still yeah. have to have the physical copy. My wife doesn't understand it that I have to order CDs from Amazon. Well, you could just download it. You could listen to it right now and have to wait a day or two. No. I want the physical copy. Why do I have all these CDs in the other room if I'm just going to stop collecting CDs? I have to have the CD. Yeah. So actually, this one was my first Dokken album. Oh, cool. And cool. it is my favorite Dokken album at the same time. So one and the same. And yes, I do own the CD. Nice. Mark, how about you? Uh, well, my first CD actually was Back for the Attack. Uh, I remember getting that. Uh, you know, when I got my first CD player and, you know, I ran to the store and, you know, you know how it is when you go buy CDs, when you go to like HMV and that you have all these idea about ones you want to go buy. And then when you get in there, you draw a blank. You're like, what was I going to get again? Oh, God, because you see all these bands there and all of a sudden you're you're looking at everything and you've forgotten half the things you wanted. So I went through and I went and I saw oh, Doc and I went through and I saw Back for the Attack and I grabbed that right away. Uh, so that was my first. My favorite one. Um, yeah, I think actually it probably is back for the attack, to be honest with you. I mean, I really listened to that album quite a lot when it came out. And it also helped that they had a song on a movie that I had watched quite a few times, which is Dream Warriors, right? So, mm. Yep. And I, I think this was probably the first album I bought again, as I mentioned. You know, I, 
I don't remember if I'd owned Tooth and Nail before this came out. So fuzzy. Um, is it my favorite? I could pretty much pick any one of the first five studio albums, depending on the day, and say that it's my favorite, including Breaking the Chains, which I absolutely love. Mm. I collect all the like Euro stuff that came out well before they tinkered mm. with uh, the uh, with the mix and changed it cool. around, which you know is also worth what's it? The twelve inch even got the twelve inch promo of. Is oh, Paris nice. is Paris burning? They misprinted it. <laughs> um, on the other yes. singles, it's just called Paris. Then it becomes Is yeah. Paris burning? And then Paris is burning. So uh, <laughs> just kind of fun. And also as a nice tie-in, Dawkins about to release a new album, The Lost Songs, 1978 to 81. So people who owned that German pirate issue from the mid 90s back. Uh, Back in the Streets, which had six songs mm-hmm. in it. It includes most of those. I think it's got the B-side to Don's first single, um, Hit and Run. Um, I don't think it's got the A-side. I'm not sure. But uh, 11 songs. And then they have a video single out right now for it. So that's always cool for you know people who like stuff from the archive. Dawkins going to mm-hmm. give you some. All right, so what were some of your first impressions uh, when listening to the album for the first time or the first time back listening to it for this episode? Mark? Um, well, at first, I remember when I was listening to it, because it's been, a, it's been a while since I listened to this record, and I got some major flashbacks from this record, like all kinds of summer parties came to mind and uh all kinds of times at the beach and stuff like that when when I would hear these songs, believe it or not, here in Ontario, uh, a lot of people's stereos that they would bring with them, funny enough, but not on radio proper. That's the thing I always noticed about Dawkin, is I always heard them on other people's stereos in their cars or on their boom boxes or stuff like that, but never on the big radio stations here like Q107 or 97.7 Hits FM. Nothing like that would ever play Dawkin. For some reason, there was always, you know, Van Halen summer nights would be played hundred times before they played Dawkin. You know what I mean on on here. But uh, I, I think that this album uh, has some great great songs in it. It has all the usual kind of suspects, the kind of you know syrupy kind of ballads, but also has the really cool melodic songs and some amazing guitar solos. I mean, one thing about Dawkin, I always say for me, whenever I think of Dawkin, I never think of Don. I always think of George. Because to me, I think George Lynch is the thing that always brought me back to Doc, and was his guitar playing, his guitar solos are just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean that's probably one of the things that jumped out at me. My impressions of this album: big choruses, number one, mm-hmm. um, very melodic solos and guitar work, very tasty. He, you know, George has every trick in the toolbox, but puts them in the right place. So very appropriate, Um, very finely crafted songs. To this day, I can sing along to this album. I was listening to it on a drive down to San Jose this morning. And I was just like, you know, bopping my head. I was in like a happy place. (laughs) So my my first impressions back then were, wow, this is a bit toned down from Tooth and Nail, but not substantially. It seemed like a natural Mm -hmm. progression from Just Got Lucky. Um, Alone Again obviously had been the big hit off uh, or not necessarily a big hit, but a big song off that yeah. album. And it continued in that direction and built on it with, you know, a little bit more melodic flavor. So that was when I really started discovering that, yeah, I liked heavy rock. I also liked melodic rock. Lonnie, your thoughts? You know, I, I listened to this a lot back in 06, I guess, when I bought it. Um, I really enjoyed 
you know, discovering them at the time that I did. It was like, it was like having a new, you know, everybody likes to have a new band that they discover and going back and, and collecting their catalog and, you know, just listen to this CD for a couple of weeks. And then I got another one and I'll listen to this one for a couple of weeks. And, um, I, I really, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, when I first started listening to them, I just loved how it just captures the spirit of, of the eighties, you know, on this record with, with the power ballads and with the, you know, the heavy guitars on the other songs. And it's so 80s rock sounding. And I, I just loved it when I when I when I bought it because it was really made me wish I was a little bit older than I could have experienced more of these bands in their in their prime in the 80s because that's what I really love. And going back and listening to it um the last few weeks getting ready for the show, because I hadn't listened to it in a while. Um listening to it again, um just you know, from from kicking it off with Unchain the Night. I mean, is there a more eighty sounding yeah. song than yeah. Unchain the Night? Is there a more eighties title for a song than Unchain the Night? You know, <laughs> it's just perfect. And you know, what what just impressed me then, and what impressed me still now, is you know, it it really whole if if you you can you can take it and can really compare. You know, and we know. Dokken isn't isn't the you know if Dokken can't a reunion tour you know they're not going to be the band that's going to the headline and and fill you know amphitheaters or, or sheds or anything like that um, but you could you can really put songs on their albums right up against anything else that was big in the day um, and it really it really goes toe to toe with it is really the impression I got again listening to it like you know I can put this up to what Motley was doing at the time. And, you know, that's, any that's other... not a very high bar though. Theater well, no, Payne. at the time, 85 theater paint, but, but, but Motley gets the recognition, you know, Motley wasn't exactly cranking it out in 85, but Motley gets the recognition because they're a Motley crew. And, you know, but Dokken is, is just, you know, it's just as great. And I, it just made me really appreciate it even more. It made me regret not getting into them, you know, until when I did I, I love it, and I, I still loved it the last few weeks listening to it. Yeah, my and my group of friends back in '85 when this was out, uh, Rat with the Big Boys, they were at the mm -hmm. top of the heap. Motley had taken a well, they'd fallen down the stairs a bit with theater uh, amongst <laughs> you know friends who had listened to Shout at the Devil. Going from that to um, you know theater yeah. was a little bit going back into the basement, and then. Wasp, Wasp wasn't very popular amongst my group um, at the time. I liked, you know, Blind in Texas and all that stuff, but Dawkins was up there. They were kind of respected, but they certainly weren't a rat level um, in our in our area. So that that's what it was. Neil Kernan is co-producer on this album. Mark, do you know anything about him? Because I really don't. Michael Wagner, the other producer everyone knows i mean he's basically responsible for la 1980 to 85 pretty much yeah oh yeah well like i told you guys once before that uh neil mixed the uh pile driver record that i was on me and uh gord mr pile driver himself we drove down to chicago and uh sat in while he did the mix and uh if you want to know what he's like gord had a great nickname for him his royal dryness because he used to, he said that he was a very dry humor, that guy, very British, uh, but really nice guy, 
tons of stories. Like we heard all kinds of stories from the making of the Lynch Mob record to his work on, uh, you know, the Queensryche album Rage for Order. Uh, the time he was with Doc and, you know, how, how they literally had to get in an assistant engineer just to kind of keep Don and George apart at times, you know, because apparently they were at, you know, wit's end with each other. And, it, you know, and, and those stories about them having to record at separate times is absolutely true. You know, they were they could not be in the same room with each other. You know, Don would have to sneak in at nights and help and did some of the mixing with them. And if George would ever find out, he hit the roof, you know. So, but Neil is a really, really cool guy. He knows his stuff. And his his trademark, like, is his guitars, I find. Much like Michael Wagner, when you listen to a Michael Wagner album, you know, he has those huge kind of 80s guitars and those kind of canon sounding drums. Same with Neil. I mean, Neil has kind of those, he's, he's heavy on the samples for the snares and the kick drums. And they always had that kind of big, you know, reverberated snare drum in the 80s. That's, you know, typical for Neil as well. Uh, but what I loved about Neil is that he also did stuff with John Anderson, too, of Yes and stuff like that. So it was always interesting to talk to him about the different albums that he's done. If you look at his discography, it's just immense what he's been involved with. But he said that this period of time was a lot of fun for him. You know, sometimes it was a little crazy, you know, bottles flying in the air and stuff like that. But, you know, it he, he said he would never trade it in for anything. Yeah, I mean, going back to this era... It's the pyromaniac effect, I think, is mm -hmm. that pyromania, obviously Def Leppard, had a tremendous kind of um, effect on other bands that suddenly thought, well, we could do that as well. And producers who said, well, I can wholesale fix those drums. That's no longer an issue. <laughs> um, so yeah. so do, do you think that was kind of a driving factor in a lot of the sounds that were happening in the, the mid-80s that Mutt Lang and... Def Leppard had done one thing and all the other bands said, well, maybe we can have five hit singles. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a copycat, you know, you it's a copycat type of industry, especially at the time. Everybody wanted to be what what was what was popular. So, you know, people saw what was going on with, with Pyromania. And I mean, this this album is a direct influence. I mean, I think it's like I think it's a great comparison with you know the number of, of ballads on it and the number of of heavier songs on it it's not just the one ballad type of type of mix um you know because that really was the formula for a while maybe you throw in one ballad, but you know there's there's multiple on here and i and i and in the sound of it as well um really comes across similar to what was def leppard was doing i mean and we've talked about it you know with with, with kiss and with other bands too how you know, it, it was a copycat industry at the time. Well, and to a certain extent, you know, the music business still is a copycat industry that, you know, whatever's popular, you know, well, look what they're doing. We're going to jump on that. You know, some people are later to the games and others, then they kind of get get caught that they're really copycatting when they come out a couple of years too late. But that's definitely what was, that's you can you can really draw the, the parallels to, to Death Leopard here. Do you know what's interesting, too? Just sorry to cut in really quickly. No, is that I've noticed, though, even back. This was a time when I was starting to get into my whole, you know, making my own bands and going to recording studios and stuff like that with my band. And I even noticed back in the scene back then, you know, you're saying it's a copycat scene and you're 100 percent correct. And that's that trickled down 
to even us independent bands. I mean, there were a hundred bands in Toronto that had all these weird names like, you know, Raggedy Ann and, you know, or, or 21 Guns and all these kind of bands. You could totally tell where they're ripping off these ideas from. And they'd have the same kind of stage moves. They'd have the same kind of, you know, clothing designs. They'd have the tassel hanging off the, the microphone stands like Steven Tyler when that became popular. You know what I mean? Like that whole copycat effect really didn't just stay up at that level it trickled down to like the independent entering artists as well and it was funny because when you go to the studio you would i remember when i was co-oping you'd hear every band and their brother come and say hey we want to have our record sound like you know pyromania and everybody started laughing oh yeah well do you have as much money as them to do it because you need a lot of time to get that and then you know bands are coming with a thousand bucks that they're lucky and expect to sound like Def leopard you know and not realizing how much time and effort it takes to make some of these kinds of records and not only that but you have to be able to write songs that are good to, to compete with it yeah you've got a pyromania they had the ideas but it took Mutt Lang to put yeah. them all together and obviously a lot of time to record that album but you know you're talking about hopping on bandwagons and all that it got really bad towards the end of the 80s that when bands mm. started naming themselves after other band songs and i, I remember when fire <laughs> firehouse came out i refused to yeah. listen to that band because it, they were the same name as a Kiss song. I was like, forget it. I'm not listening to that. I kind of checked out after Trickster and all that. So, oh, yeah. Boxy um, Blue and all these bands. Oh. Right. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, there were some good bands, you know, even if with bad names. But uh, let's talk about some of the singles from this album. There were th technically two, but three videos. So we include The Hunter, In My Dreams, and The Awesome it's not love. not love. Do you think those are good single choices? And what are your thoughts on the videos, Lonnie? Um, I think they're they're decent single choices. I mean, I would have I would have definitely would have chosen "Lightning Strikes Again" as a single. Um, I just think it's so so raw and powerful that it definitely deserved um, the single treatment. Um, I, I guess in place of the hunter, if I'm going to replace one with another, and that's tough to do, but that's what I but me personally, I would have, that's the route I would have gone. Um, the videos, I love the, the, the videos are so eighties. You, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's a time, it's like a time capsule watching those. I mean, it brings, you know, I, uh, you know, I remember, I remember watching, you know, document videos back in the day, you know, I wasn't into them, but, um, is, but is they're just such time capsules. You can put yourself right back in 1985, 1986 watching those. I mean, it's just, perfect I, I, I wouldn't change a thing you know what i mean mark how about you yeah i mean i i got to agree um th those are some pretty memorable videos i mean that it's not love video how much more typical 80s do you get than that you have like the cut into the chorus like it's not love and you have uh, every person in there singing the chorus and the typical guy with the cut off t-shirt on and the bandana it's like total you know, tribute to the eighties, no, those videos. Wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, but it, that's what I mean. Like, I, I love that time period. It was such a, I tried to explain it to some people that I know now that are in bands that are much younger than me, that that was a time when I would go to concerts two, three times a week. They would have so many concerts coming and so many excellent bands would come through Toronto. You know, you see David Lee Roth one night, Scorpions the next night, you know, it was incredible. And the, the opening bands are good. Great white, extreme and like all kinds of bands would come in through toronto and you know and people would be partying people would be you know hanging off of each other there's some guy you just met 10 minutes ago he'd be sharing a beer with you and stuff like that you know like it was a totally different time for 
for watching concerts and partying. Like those days are long gone. You know, those kinds of parties, you know, partying on the lawn at Kingsland Music Theater, watching Triumph or something like that. It was unbelievable those days, you know. But that video, I think, really encapsulates that whole feel of it. And I agree with Lonnie. Maybe if there was a song, I would switch out. And maybe The Hunter, maybe I would put in like Unchained the Night and maybe do like a, an edit of it because it is kind of a long song. But that chorus is so good. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know why they didn't try to make an edit of that song and try to release that. But, you know, In My Dreams was the, was a good song. And the only thing that ever caught me off guard with that song was just that beginning, that very barbershop harmonized introduction. I was like, whoa, that's really uh, some great harmonies. But I just didn't, it was it was kind of unexpected. But the rest of the song is great. Another great song with some great George Lynch ripping guitar solos. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with any of the singles off this album. I, I kind of like the idea that, yeah, Unchained the Night could have possibly. Uh, I love the intro to In My Dreams because it's not something that you expect. You don't yeah. expect that sort of har a cappella harmonizing at the beginning of a basically a hard rock song. But it's all about It's Not Love. That is just, you know, it's got to be on the video playlist for the 1980s. Uh, it's so cheesy. It's so wonderful. It's so ACDC, because obviously they had done a video uh, riding on the back of a truck, basically. I mean, who hasn't mm -hmm. by this point? It's just one of those nice things that really works well. Great fun video. Always look forward to it when watching MTV, because you never knew what was going to be played. And you're like, yeah, they played it. Awesome. You know, <laughs> they played the rap video. Good. They didn't play any Twisted Sister, because by 85, obviously, no one wanted anything to do with that band. So I don't think I, I would change anything. Um, what are some of the songs that music that stand out for you on this album? And, you know, pick pick your three favorites off it. Um, Lonnie, let's go with you. Um, for me, obviously, one of my favorites is Lightning Strikes Again, because I said I, I would have made it a single if it was up to me. I I just love the I love the guitars at the beginning of that song. Absolutely love them. And um, Unchain the Night would have to be number two. And then my third. It's tough. I'd say it's not love. I guess I have to, but it's 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 hard to say because you know it, it's one of those albums where and there's not many of these albums out there. But it's one of those albums where there, there's really not a throwaway on there for me. And, you know, we, we, we review albums a lot and they're, you know, we always talk about, oh, you know, I would, I would have taken this song. I would have taken that song. Off. Um, of these 10 songs, I, I really don't, I really couldn't say like, oh, that's my least favorite. I like, I can, I skip this one every time type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really, truly don't. It's one of those, it's, you know, you guys, you guys mentioned, Julian, you mentioned playlists at the beginning of the show. You know, maybe it's, you have a playlist, you have an album, you know, it's one of those, for me, it's, it, I put, I don't, I don't, I don't put this album with Appetite for Destruction because Appetite's on a different level for me, but it's like Appetite in the fact that if I'm going to listen to this album, I need to listen to it from track one through track 10, the sequence, and it just, it just fits mm. together so nicely. So it's a long answer to a short question um, of Unchained and I, Lightning Strikes Again, and I'll, I, I'll, I'll just say it's not Love is my favorite. Long answers to short question. That's what podcasters yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Mark, what about you? Pick your three favorites and uh, any other standouts that you have from the album. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to agree with Lonnie, though. I mean, uh, this is one album that, believe it or not, I think has to be played beginning to end. I mm -hmm. think it, it has such a great 
uh, sequence of songs in there. I mean, the last couple of days I've been listening to it, and the only way I would ever listen to it is just go to the beginning, hit play, and just let the whole thing go through. And it, and it sounds great. I mean, even the ballads were not skippable, in my opinion, because they always had something in there that caught my attention. And it was most likely George's guitar playing, but still, it doesn't matter. The, the point is that they were all songs that made you want to sit down and listen to them beginning to end. And again, Unchained the Night is one of my favorites, so that's going to be one of them. Uh, I have to say, It's Not Love was always a favorite of mine, video or no video. So that's uh, one in there. But I mean, the third one is always kind of a toss-up because I could maybe say, you know, Till the Living End is a really great song. I don't mind that one as well. But then, you know, I kind of think about Lightning Strikes Again is another fantastic song as well. So, you know what, I'll probably stick with Lightning Strikes Again. I think that, you know, those are the three that kind of really stand out. But again, you know, In My Dreams is another great one. Again, I mean, every song I think of, there's something that pops out. Oh, I remember George doing that really cool lick here and there. It's just, that's what I really love about these Dawkins records is that he always put something in there for, you know, the guitar player, you know, and then Don Dawkins always tried to put in there something to catch the female audience, you know, and and that's what kind of made these bands. That's the way, I remember a manager guy once told me this, he goes, you gotta have a singer that attracts the girls and a guitar player that attracts the guys, and then you have a successful band. Yeah, and, th- and then there's a bassist who could do load in and load out, <laughs> 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 and the drummer can carry the singer's mic. All right, three, three favorite three off this. Well, it's not loves a given. Um, you know, I've reached for the guitar nearly every time to play that riff, and it's a really fun song to play on the guitar rhythm. Uh, only because mm-hmm. I'm not good enough to play any lead. Um, number two, oh God, now it gets difficult. Uh, probably Unchain the Night. And then n- number three would likely be, I don't know, Jaded Heart. There's a really great part in the breakdown section going into the guitar solo on Jaded Heart that could have been off Kiss's Elder. Just the dynamics of musicality on there before that, listen to it uh, later. That gets me every time, but I gotta go with you know kind of the most obvious ones because they are that good. Uh, songs that you don't like on this album, you you guys have both kind of said that it's the whole package. Now in the cassette tape days, little Julian hopping on his redline BMX bike and going down to Kmart at Vestal Plaza to buy cassettes, I didn't have the benefit of being able to easily skip. It's not like you could just quickly lift the needle and drop down to the next groove. You pretty much, if you were a lazy 15-year-old, weren't going to sit there and press forward, (laughs) fast forward, play, fast forward, play. Okay, we're through it. There's one song I really, really do not like on this, and it's Serapy. Um, Slipping Away. Slipping Away. Yes. is my one I don't it's not so bad to the point where I skip it these days because you know when I'm in the car driving fumbling around to find the skip on, while moving for me is a little bit too much like chewing bubblegum and walking it just ain't gonna happen but I just uh, I, it doesn't seem to go anywhere um, I would much rather they had left uh, what was it back for the attack the the b-side that was used on dream warriors that I believe dated from these sessions. I left that on there because number one, it's a much harder track, uh, completely different in style to everything else on this album. And it doesn't go into that sickly syrupy stage. So that's the, the Aunt Jemima of sweetness that is Hmm. artificial flavor and additional sugar. 
Lonnie, anything that would get near that kind of rage? If well, not near that rage, no. Uh, however, you know, I, I've already commented that you know I I wouldn't really change change out a track or drop a track, you know. But at the same time, I knew you were gonna say slipping away. I just you know, I, when you said, well, there's one, when you said, well, there's one track, I, even before you said it's therapy, I knew you were going to say slipping away, just, I guess, because we talked too much over the years, and I kind of knew where you were going to go with it. Um, and I can see that, I can see that, but for me, I I don't skip any of these songs, so I can't really say that, yeah, I would take that one off. So I, I'm going to cop out and say, no, I wouldn't take any off. It's not a cop out to be adamant. Mark. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to I have to second that. I mean, the, this whole record is just <laughs> it's it's gonna it's gonna be one of those records where I listen to it like that at the till the end of time. And you know, the funny thing is that I'm not surprised either that that you said you know that song was the one that was gonna be the one to be you know the one you despised. The funny thing about it though is when I looked at it and think back to those days of, you know, doing my studio co-oping and stuff like that. That was one of the things that they always tried to drill in your head, these, these producer types, is that when you structure your side of your albums, you have to try to make sure that the ballad is, like, number four. They always tell you that. <laughs> you have to put the ballad right. there. It's the second last song on the side. You get them one more at the end of the side, and then you flip it over, and then you kind of try to place the ballad on side B at the same kind of spot. So when, when this came up, it kind of brings a smile to my face because it kind of reminds me back to those days of when, you know, you're being taught all the ins and outs of the music industry of what they think should be as far as an arrangement of an album. But you know what? There's got to be something in it because me and Lonnie both said that we wouldn't change anything and we would listen to these albums beginning to end. So maybe they got it right. Yeah, I, I think these albums stand the test of time because here we are, what, 35 years on talking about the damn thing. So that that's, <laughs> you know, and it's an album that a lot of people still listen to. It's been reissued. Um, it's come out on vinyl. So it's got enough of a cachet within the existing market of aging metal maniacs from the 80s to still be relevant enough. And, you know, you don't see Jet Boy getting you know, the issues too often. Yeah. Maybe maybe they do, and I just don't notice. Um, you know, that's also a complete possibility. Uh, but what do you think about the, you know, George Lynch, Guitar Heroes in the 80s. Uh, you had Warren D. Martini. You had, well, Warren D. Martini. Richie Sambora was emerging at that time, because 1985, of course, was 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which was pretty much a failure. Um, you know, where does he kind of fit in with this era's guitar hero for you uh, mark you're obviously the guitarist in the house so well I, I think honestly that he deserved much bigger uh cachet than he got i think the only reason why he wasn't as a big a household name as let's say eddie van halen was is because of, he was in Dawkins. if he was on any if he would have successfully auditioned for ozzy like he did back in the day and gotten that position as ozzy's guitarist everybody and their brother would have known george lynch Right. But because he didn't and he was back in dock and I don't think he got the same thing. But I mean, look, at it's it was so hard then. You got to understand that, too, because every band and even back in these indie times and back when in the even in the Toronto scene, the, every band tried to have a gunslinger. You know what I mean? That's why we all bought those Paul Gilbert intense sequences videotapes to try to learn how to do all these 
razzmatazz guitar playing because we every band at that point needed one. If you weren't that good, you were relegated to rhythm guitar or you were just out of the band altogether. You know what I mean? So, and there was a lot of bands that had these players. Look at Vito Brada and White Lion. You know, Tesla had two shredding guys in their band, you know, Tommy and Frank Hanna. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, sure, uh, you know, Cinderella had Jeff Labar and Tom Kiefer. They weren't exactly shredders, but they were great guitar players nonetheless, right? Every one of these bands that you think about, you know, and, and let's not forget David Lee Roth or Steve I, like, hello. You know, like that. There's there's an example of what every band back in the day was trying to gun for was a kind of guitar player like this. And I think George, unfortunately, because he was in a band that didn't climb into the top three tiers. Same with same with White Lion, Vito Brada. I love his guitar playing, but he never they never broke out of that second position in the in the uh, concert thing. There was the opener. They were always the special guest, and then the big, huge band was at the end. They were always that special guest band. Same with Dawkins, you know what I mean? So they never got out of that position. If they would have, I think George Lynch would have been the, one of the big guitar heroes. Yeah, I, I mean, without a doubt, he was one of the best guitarists, and he also looked the part. Mick Mars mm-hmm. was a fanta- fantastic guitarist, uh, but didn't really look guitar hero-ish. Um, <laughs> you know, Rat had a pair of them, Warren. And Robin Crosby. I mean, what mm-hmm. a pair of both lead and rhythm players, but they didn't have kind of the synchronicity that a guitar pair need, like a Whitford and Joe Perry, mm-hmm. that automatically slot into roles as necessary, but also go into other areas w- without even really thinking about it, having that dynamic. So George, I mean, I, I, I said it earlier, he had every trick of the trade. He was very well-schooled. He was also very well self-edited. He didn't vomit notes like Ingve was kind of guilty of doing yeah. later on. Ingve in the 80s is just beyond compare in terms of guitar. He, he was so well edited then. It was later that it all became a little bit, uh, you know, too kind much. Of a, kind of a caricature of himself. But, you know, you take Trilogy, you take The Rising Force, or Odyssey. Eclipse, mm. any of yeah. that, that stuff is exactly where I want to be in terms of uh, Ingve. But George yeah. Lynch, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why he didn't break in because he had the chops. He has the chops. And he was certainly part of a good, you know, artistic friction team um, for the songwriting side of things. Because there was a lot of songwriting going on in this band that was a team effort. Uh, Unchained the Night, I believe, was originally called Under Lock and Key and had a, a fast rewrite. But there was just something that didn't quite click that elevated them. You know, they're on the right track. Tooth and Nail went gold. This comes out, goes gold, then platinum. So they were building. But they just never seemed to to be able to make it to the next level, which is, a, for me, a really <laughs> crying shame. Do you think the drama in the band was ultimately what... Um, you know, made them not work. And did you follow any of that drama? I mean, Lonnie, it was the 80s, so I don't think you were following it somehow. I was not um, following, considering I <laughs> didn't really get into the band until 2006. I was not, um, you know, reading Hit Parader and keeping up on the drama back in 85 with the band. Unfortunately, I can't I can't comment a whole lot on that. I can try to bullshit my way through, but I'm not going to do that and bullshit you guys so um i can't unfortunately i can't really comment on that unfortunately you guys have to you guys have to take the lead on that all right mark drama 
Well, I mean, it is well known, like I said, that those guys really butted heads a lot. And the funny thing is that it wasn't only just back in the 80s. I mean, when they got back together again, they did that one night live acoustic album where they reunited. It went over really well. And they were always, you know, jabbing fun at each other on stage, you know, how about the whole kind of thing. And then, yes, Dysfunctional came out, uh, which was a pretty decent record. A lot of people gave it pretty some pretty critical acclaim. Uh, then Shadow Life came. And then the drama started again. George Lynch didn't want to be in the same studio with Don. Uh, they were com- they were complaining about direction style. You know, Don wanted to have the kind of alternate alternative kind of stuff in there to some degree, but not as much as apparently George did for some reason. He, he I guess he figured that you know there was more interesting guitar stuff to do in the alternative scheme of thinking than what Don was thinking. But you know, it it, it never ended with them. That and you can't run a band unless you have a a good manager that you know breaks apart the kind of mishmash that they have or if you can just you know put put your differences aside and just say you know what for the greater good of the music or the greater good of our wallets let's just put it to everything aside and move forward and one other thing i wanted to say really quickly before we move on about george and why maybe he wasn't a big hero um he put out a, an infamous instructional video and amongst guitar players, and you got to remember back in the 90s and stuff, you know, MIT and GIT was all the rage about going to school and learning how to shred from Paul Gilbert and doing all these kind of courses and becoming a full all-round guitarist. George Lynch was very much frowned down and looked upon because a couple of clips came out of him talking about scales and totally botching them on video, saying this is a... Uh, a D minor scale and the guy would be like, no, no, it's a D augmented, you know, and he would correct it because he had no, he has no clue of anything note wise on the guitar. And that right away, they, the guitar players jumped all over and said, this guy doesn't know anything. He's just playing everything just off the top of his head, you know? And that was another thing that kind of brought him down a few pegs from guitar players at that time. Right. But I still think he's fantastic. Whether he knows the note or not is irrelevant to me. He plays fantastic, and he can play around that guitar like nobody's business. That, to me, is the most important thing. He may not have known what he was playing, but he sure played it good. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it can tell the difference between a pentatonic scale or whatever. You know, that's mm-hmm. a, as much, I don't know, theory either. Um, but Shadow Life, yeah, I think a lot of the fans were also saying, please don't ever go in the studio again after Shadow Life came out, because, <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty dire. <laughs> Let's talk about what immediately came after Under Lock and Key. And I must say, in terms of the Sonic's overall package, back for the attack. I remember when this came out, and I went down to the store and got it uh, again. Cassette land. My goodness, Kiss of Death. What mm. an opening track. Um, you know, as the final question, what did you think of where they went, and do you still follow the band, Lonnie? Um, I like where they went. Um, back for the attack is probably my second favorite Dokken album. Um, it's it's right up it, you know I mean it is it is right up there with under lock and key so um, I like I like where they went um, as and how they were pro- progressing um, um, like you said um, kiss of death is fantastic start of an album I mean, you couldn't ask I mean it doesn't get a whole lot better than that it's, and dream warriors is fantastic as well but um, do I still follow the band today? No, I can't say that I do. Um, I guess I'm more of a casual Dokken fan, even though I really 
you know, really like several of their albums. I can't really say, I guess, keep up with the comings and goings, you know, today. But, you know, um, as far as a time capsule of the 80s go, they're just a perfect example. Yeah, Mark, how about you? I love Back for the Attack. I mean, I remember when that when that opening riff started with that. Dan, 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 dan. I was like, wow, this sounds really awesome. And I mean, for me as a guitar player, a young guitar player at the time too, it had everything I ever wanted. I mean, Mr. Scary, hello, like that's like what a great you know instrumental to put on there for a guitar player and and to kind of sit there and wait for my issue of guitar for the practicing musician to come in that has the transcription for it, look at it and go, oh my god, what the hell is all this? And try to figure out what he's doing on the guitar great songs i mean also like standing in the shadows i've always loved that song you know great stuff on there and i mean for all you guitar geeks out there who listen to these kind of shows i remember one thing that was a big thing about this album was everybody was trying to say figure out where is that marshall head that he used for this album because apparently he had rented a purple colored marshall like an old like super lead marshall that he got the tone from and everybody and their brother was trying to hunt down this purple Marshall head to try to get that sound. And I mean, if you even look at some of the George Lynch videos nowadays, when they talk about his amps and the history of his sound, you know, he still doesn't know, I don't think where it is. And then later on, he he found it, I think through Randall Jackson, I think maybe had it, the, the head, and he tried to get it off him and has never been able to purchase it outright from him. But, you know, that's what I mean. Like when you listen to a record like that, that guitar sound was so iconic you had people hunting for that amplifier for years later. I mean, same with Slash, apparently, when he recorded Appetite for Destruction. He wanted that head that he used to record it. Unfortunately, he brought it back to SIR, and he was never able to find it ever again, right? So, you know, it's an amplifier something that's going to make all the difference in the sound of a record, and this is one of those examples. That sounds like a Jack Black movie, Quest for the Magical Note. (laughs) (laughs) Must find the head so I can make that sound again. So I stuck with the band through Beast Beast in the East. And, Mm. you know, Walk Away, really the last studio song that they did in the original run, thought was fantastic. And you just kind of knew they were going to split. Bought the first Lynch Mob album, um, loved Mm. it. Uh, Did not Mm. enjoy Don's solo work particularly and i haven't bought any of the albums in the 2000s i was listening to them on spotify you know i bought return to the east um you know and, and because obviously that was the set, the original lineup i'll buy the new one when it comes out because it's from the early 80s but back for the attack i thought married the sonics of tooth and nail with the songwriting of under lock and key perfectly so they had really evolved as far as they could go i remember being pissed that they included dream warriors on it because i hate that song with a passion i was <laughs> never mind I, I, one of my least favorite songs um yeah just go figure yeah or maybe it doesn't surprise anyone but uh you know when i saw the original Dokken self-titled album that was released in Japan first in 94, I bought that in a heartbeat. And then, of course, it was kind of, I think, remixed and tarted up a little bit to become dysfunctional. And I was like, wow, they're back. But then Shadow Life was knife mm-hmm. through the heart of my Dokken soul. I didn't even, you know, Don Dokken was in town. Didn't even bother going. So, you know, they're a band that for me is firmly in the 80s. They're, they're you know, back to when I was 15, 16, mm-hmm. and all that. So, you know, happy memories. Enjoy playing them. All right. Let's, any final thoughts, or let's leave it there? I'm Do- good. All right. Docking, under lock and key, with its 495, 
Four ninety five from Amoeba, that copy. There you go. Nice. Uh, you know, pick it, pick it up. It's been reissued, so it sounds as good as it's ever going to sound. And check out those three videos on YouTube because they are really good. And of course, you can go over to Spotify and listen to the whole album for yourself and chime in wherever you listen to this with your thoughts on this album and the band themselves. Love to hear from people who remember when Don Dokken played guitar. Check out the Bremen '82 <laughs> video on YouTube as well for yes. Dokken, which included one Krausier. How do you say his mm-hmm. name? Um, yeah. Good stuff. All right, that's it. Dawkins, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>